Welcome to the Anonymous Andrew Podcast. Life and the choices we make. The choices other people make. Why we choose to ignore the red flags. Red flags like gaslighting, cheating, addiction, mental illness, and much more. What role do they play in relationships? Follow me each week as we discuss these topics with anonymous guests and experts to hopefully become better humans, resulting in better choices. Like I say, been there, still doing that. Now on to the show. Anonymous Andrew back with another episode. So today we're going to do a little bit something different. Um, We're going to steer a little bit away from the actual concepts and traits of red flags and relationships and all that. Uh, We're going to deal with a topic that's very near and dear, close to my heart, is sobriety. Um, And more to the point, addiction, alcoholism, and addiction to anything, whether it's uh, gambling, pornography, shoplifting, um, or or other anything else that's uh, one becomes addicted to, be, whether it's behaviors or um, inflicting harm to the body. Uh, the guest that I have on the show today is a longtime friend of mine. Uh, we met quite some time ago, maybe 10 years, um, and he is an alcohol, I'm sorry, credentialed alcohol substance abuse counselor. And he has been a big part of my support system over the years. And um, he was actually approached me quite some time ago about doing a podcast together. And then when, of course, the shit hit the fan on my end with this relationship, I just knee-jerk jumped on and started a podcast. And um, anyway, this is a great interview. If you have somebody in your life who is um, involved with drugs or alcohol or any addiction. And the statistics show that every family has somebody that has an addiction problem, whether it be pornography, whether it be gambling, whether it be shoplifting, um, you name it. There's an addiction today for everything as there is a 12-step program for everything, even codependency addiction to relationships or, or, or people so I present to you my interview or my conversation with my good friend Alex Hamilton and if you enjoy this show please folks leave a review five stars at the bottom if, you, if your platform allows it it does help my show it is being produced by me and um, I, I am not getting paid but you can help me by just getting some reviews on there and that pushes the podcast up into the algorithm world to greatly appreciate it. It just takes one minute. All right. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Good day, everybody. Anonymous Andrew here with you once again. And today I have a little bit of a different uh, episode for you. So up until this point, we've been talking about um, all the red flags and relationships and uh, staying in them and how do we get out of them and we've been defining uh, the different types of traits and like like gaslighting and narcissism and infidelity there was one topic that i did mention early on in the podcast and uh, it's about me 
um, and it's about my sobriety. And I did say that one day we would dive into that. And and I, I I'm not going to do that today, but but we need to talk about alcoholism and addiction as it relates to relationships um, and and in in our culture in general. So with us today, I have a, a I'm very honored to have Alex Hamilton Kasak. And Kasak stands as Kasak is C-A-S-C, Credentialed Alcohol Substance Abuse Counselor. So Alex, would you like to say hello? Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. And I am honored to have you. And just for transparency, folks, uh, Alex and I have known each other for well over five years, maybe even longer. Um, and uh, he, he and I are, are friends today. And um, so I'm finally able to get him on my show. And so, all right, Alex, um, let's see where we're going to take this. Um, I am an alcoholic in recovery. Um, I know all about sobriety and, and, and addiction. And I too had a case act credential back in the nineties. Um, and, and by the way, they tell people in recovery, do not become a case act. I think you, you probably have heard that because I relapsed. I was, I was a case act and I relapsed while I was in working for, um, a local municipality. So it's not a good idea to be in sobriety and become a case act. It's just, they warn you against it. And it, it, it happened to me. Alex, tell us a little bit about you or, or um, I know you work for, for a corporation. We're not going to mention it, um, but how do you see alcoholism or addiction affect relationships or, or families or workplaces? What's your take on what's going on in today's society? Uh, thanks. Um... Yeah, through my work, I work in an outpatient setting and I, I run groups uh, with people in recovery and I work with them individually. And uh, some of the most gratifying work I get to do is with family members and loved ones of people in recovery, whether that whether their loved one is actually chasing recovery or if they're struggling with it, maybe they're out on a on a run, um, but 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 the family member is heartbroken and and feeling powerless because there really isn't too much they, they can do. Uh, if I can, as I'd, I'd love to talk about that, and I'd love to give uh, my take on addiction and maybe how it ties into some of the earlier topics you, you've discussed on your podcast. Um, but I just want to, since you mentioned, you know, sort of warning people in recovery uh, away from becoming a counselor, um, I would just add this caveat, the warning, uh, because by the way, this is um, an area where we desperately, desperately need uh, people uh, on the front line, helping people fight the disease. And uh, since COVID, that's only uh, gone, the need has only gone exponentially higher. A lot of the workforce has retired. So, so the caveat is, it's, it's not to uh, that you can't become a counselor because you're right. A lot of people, once they get uh, liberated from that addiction, uh, they want to share the good news with everybody. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and so there's just this very natural impulse to be of service to other people struggling because you want them to, to benefit the way you have. 
Um, the recommendation is just not to do it too soon. Thank you. I, you know what, as I, as I said it, and then as I was listening to you, I realized that I only had about two and a half years. This was back in 1995. And I only had about two and a half years of sobriety back then. You're correct. If you have more substantial recovery period, like eight to 10 to 15 years, and you get into it, your, your likelihood of succeeding is much higher. I was not ready for it. Simple as that. So, I, and, I, and that's yeah. fair enough. Yeah, it's yeah. a hard job. Uh, it, by the way, it's a, a noble profession. It's very rewarding. Um, it may not always be financially rewarding, but it, no. it has its other rewards. And it's sorely needed, especially in light of the opioid epidemic. Oh. Um, it, and I, I, um, I wanted to add that um, you're going to be able to edit this, right? My pauses. Uh, yes, I can. But okay. I, I, Sorry. I, I've done this many times myself. When you when you the okay. point the, the thoughts right well, there and it just disappears. All right. Well, I'll circle back to whatever it was I want to say. But uh, uh, oh, uh, it's that it turns out today there are a lot of ways that you can serve that positive impulse to be of service. Um, so you don't, um, and maybe becoming a KSAC is one of them. Uh, for some people, they may want to become a, a social worker or, or get a, an advanced degree in psychology or run a facility. Um, there's also now something that didn't exist back in, in the 90s called a Sherpa, which is a certified recovery peer advocate. Hmm. And That's it's not, it, yeah, it, it's pretty new, but it's been very effective. And um, so it doesn't require all the education and training and it doesn't have that a certification as a counselor would, re would require, uh, but it does require training and you get, rather than meeting the client as a professional, you're meeting them as a peer. And that can be, so for instance, one, and there are many ways uh, you can get involved, but one setting is in an ER. So if someone's OD'd, they come to, uh, rather than having a nurse or a doctor or a counselor talking at them, um, they sense when it's a peer, when it's someone who's walked the walk and talked the talk and really been there. Uh, there's just this visceral, immediate connection that the person isn't trying to sell them anything, and and uh, and it and it's gotten a great positive response. Um, so, uh, and the point is, so I've had a lot of clients who aren't ready. And by the way, you, I don't know about back then, but today you can't even become a KSEC until you have a minimum of two years sobriety in, in a lot of cases. So you just had like on paper, barely, yeah. right? The minute, and there are reasons for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are reasons for that. So um, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the quick story, what happened to me. Uh, it, it wasn't anything that triggered me to go drink um, while I was working at this municipality, not actually far from where you're working. Um, I was counseling a young woman and 
I, 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 ethically, you're not supposed to get involved with people and nothing happened between us. But there was one Thanksgiving where she um, was uh, ostracized from her family. They did not invite her because she was actively doing drugs. And so she was home on Thanksgiving and, and she was texting me or, or you know, there's no texting back then. She called me and she was alone and she was missing her family. And I brought her a Thanksgiving dinner. I, I was at a plush family gathering where there was like 50 people and all like 50 turkeys and blah, 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 blah. So I put a plate together and I drove out to where she lived and I gave her a Thanksgiving dinner. She went back and told one of her counselors, uh, somebody else at, at the center that I worked at, and that's a no-no. Apparently, that was a I crossed the line just by giving her a Thanksgiving dinner, and I was fired over that, and that ended my KSAC career. Subsequently, at that point, I had already had risen above, and and this is where the sobriety people are cautioned also to become a KSAC because sometimes when you when you you have sobriety and then you get educated about the addiction you start to think that you no longer need that 12-step program that got you sober and i drifted away from the 12 steps program and i stopped going to meetings so that's where i relapsed is um about 12 weeks or so after i was fired i, I stayed sober for that long but then one night i was out at a birthday party and i I picked up an, a one drink and led to 12 drinks and, and subsequently my first DWI that night. So, wow. yeah. Um, so it wasn't necessarily the KSAC being a KSAC or anything that I was doing, accounting, and I was triggered to drink. It was some an act that I did. I thought it was an act of kindness, but it turned out that it's ethically, I just shouldn't have done what I did. Um, I, I, to this day, it, it, I don't understand why I was trying to help somebody enjoy their Thanksgiving, but it was a no, no anyway. So, well, by the way, I, I really appreciate the story. Um, I, I have very early on when I started in this field, I had a similar incident. I just got very lucky that the infraction wasn't as serious and I was able to get off with a warning. Mm. Uh, um, but it could uh, it was made crystal clear to me that if anything like that ever happened again you were uh, that that would be the end of it and, yeah. and just for our listeners uh, because the case act is given out by new york state it's not just that you would be out of the job at the facility you're in your certification would be revoked so you Correct. wouldn't work in this field and we we're uh, by the way so uh, I, just one thing i want to you know clarify you were doing something good of course yeah. you on a human level there's no question that you were doing something good uh but that's saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions <laughs> is it turns out that in this situation it was not ethical or appropriate for, for and, and one of, so this new sherpa position is an interesting thing I've been in very similar situations where you see people are hurting, you see they have no one, and you do, and just on a human level, you want, you know, chances are if you got into this field of helping people, you, you want to help people. Um, now, while I, as a KSAC, couldn't do something like that, uh, a certified recovery peer advocate doesn't have any certification 
to be at risk. She uh, uh, likewise, I can't share my personal cell phone number with a client. That's a really bad idea, yeah. right? Because yeah. it need to be certain boundaries in order for me to best serve them and to protect myself. And I don't mean from anything nefarious. I just mean emotionally so that I can, it's sort of like the old, you know, uh, air mask in an airplane that the parent needs to take it first. Otherwise they won't be conscious to help care of. So to be the best counselor, it turns out sometimes you got to put boundaries in. sometimes sort of like a, being a parent, the answer has to be no. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. They, they, I crossed a boundary. I, I saw this patient or client or whatever we call them outside the clinic in a setting that was not appropriate. Um, and I don't know if she took it, how she took it, but anyway, we, we, we'll go past this, but yeah, I learned, well, that, and that was a long time ago, by the way. And, yep. and I've forgotten about it. So it, by the way, though, it, it um, I'm, I'm hoping that some of this conversation again about similarities, about how, rather than focusing on the other person in a relationship equation, getting to have more clarity, which by the way, is one of my favorite working definitions for sobriety um, is clarity. Uh, it's not the only one, it's part of it, but I, it, it really is helpful in a lot of ways. And um, getting more clarity about what your motivations are and what your emotional triggers are and what's getting activated, your emotional stuff, uh, I think of that as real sobriety, and that helps not only uh, if the addiction is to substances, but as we were talking about earlier, uh, before we started recording, uh, the process of romantic love and falling in love, uh, infatuation, is in a lot of ways like this. Uh, so let me, you're a, you, you've shared that uh, you've been in recovery for some time now, you know a lot of stuff about it. Do you know, uh, and you may have heard me talk about this in the past, the word addiction, uh, what the etymology of it is, where, what, what, if you know what it means, mm -hmm. uh, and by, just for our listeners, the textbook, the current working textbook definition is that it is a chronic progressive disease of the brain where the person continues to use in spite of continued negative circumstances. Um, anyway, uh, so it turns out that addiction, um, comes from Latin and it's actually two words. AD means two, T-O in English and D-I-C-T is the root word for word or spoken. Uh, so for instance, we have the word dictionary or diction, uh, in Spanish, uh, the, the verb is decir, to speak. And in ancient Rome, um, there was a, it was a legal term, and it meant that if you offended me somehow, the court, I could sue you, bring you into court, and the court would make you my slave for a set period of time until you paid back the damage. Hmm. So, and, and, and the way they would, the idiomatic expression would be that you were spoken for by me. So uh, to be ad dictus, is to be spoken for, which in English we would just call a slave. Hmm. 
So well, let me ask you, as someone who has a lot of experience, both in addiction and recovery, does that ring true and appropriate to you? I was, if you're referring to, I was a slave to alcohol. Yeah. Um, and as you were explaining that, several thoughts popped into my mind. So just, just for transparency, again, I had some sobriety back in the 90s. I went back out and I stayed out for 18 years and then I got sober again in 2015. But while, and I'll speak in the eye, but I, but I, I do belong to a 12-step program, so I know this, this story is a lot for all of us. While we're actively drinking or, or drugging and, and either the next morning or in, in the middle of doing it, we know that we're harming ourselves, we're, that we're harming the brain, the mind, the soul, the spirituality. Because I would often go, and this is, I can speak for other people too, I would run to the pharmacy and I would buy all these supplements to help my liver, to help my pancreas, anything that I that I thought would counter the the mal effects that were happening that I was doing to my body, so I can continue to drink like milk thistle. I think there's this thing about milk thistle helps the liver. So I I, I bought I, I can't tell you how much milk thistle I bought, thinking that if I just take taking this milk thistle, that the alcohol is not going to damage my liver. It, it's it's it may or may not help but it didn't help me because when I got into recovery, my liver enzymes were off the chart. So um, not sure why I told you that story, but um, yeah. It sounds it, like the idea of slavery resonated with oh, you. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there are days when we got up in the morning and it said, I, I, the hangover was just so severe and you would say, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to drink today. And then by, an hour later, you have a drink in your hand. And many times, then it got to the point where you needed that drink so badly to, because nothing worked. Aspirin, ibuprofen, if you, if you were lucky to have an oxycodone around to pop in, it, it didn't help. The only thing that helped is that expression, the, the hair of the dog that bit you is another drink. So I'd get up in the morning and have another drink. So th that's slavery to alcoholism. It's just you can't stop, even if you want to, and, and you can't. And of course, many people who are very advanced alcoholics, if they try to stop on their own, they die. Look what happened to um, uh, that famous singer, um, Amy Wittenhauser, I think. Winehouse, yes. Winehouse. Uh, uh, she died because she tried to detox herself. And you can't do that. If you need if you need proper detoxification, you need proper medical detoxification. So, <clears throat> um, anyway, yes, I, I was a slave to alcohol, not so much the drugs, but while drugs were a big part of my story, alcoholism was twenty four seven around the clock. And um, it was it was they were you if you were a passenger in my car, you would hear the bottles rattling in my trunk, and you would look at me and go, "What's?" what is that you know or if you knew me you knew what it was so um that's how bad it gets and to the point where i was embarrassed to put out my recyclables on the curb because it was filled with you know empty scotch and empty whiskey i was a whiskey drinker um you're embarrassed to put all that empty bottles on the recyclable uh, on wednesdays or whatever day it is so yes 
absolute slave slave to to the drug. Great. Um, I, let me take a moment to, as a sort of public service announcement, just education-wise for your listeners uh, who may not be uh, as familiar with recovery and addiction the way it works. <laughs> just a lot of people are under this, speaking of Amy Winehouse, are under this impression that alcohol is a softer drug compared to heroin, let's say, right? We have this expression, hard drugs, or that even that beer uh, compared to hard liquor. And uh, it just, as far as the medical detox, it turns out that the two substances that you must get uh, medically detox from in, in a hospital detox setting is alcohol and benzodiazepines uh, like Xanax or Clonopin are examples of that drug. Uh, because uh, when you go into withdrawal, that can cause seizures and you can die during the seizure. Um, so oddly enough, uh, withdrawing from heroin or opioids may feel like you want to die, but you're not going to. Right. Sick, you're going to be awful. There are all these horrible symptoms uh, that people have endured, which is why they go to such great lengths to avoid it and will do you know, unspeakable things, things they would normally never do when they're not in active addiction. But uh, I just uh, wanted to take a moment to acknowledge and dispel that myth that it turns out as a chemical, uh, both alcohol and benzodiazepines, uh, once your body gets uh, used to it, you, you can't just cold turkey. Yeah. You're really <laughs> putting yourself in danger. Uh, the Chinese have uh, this great saying, uh, the man takes a drink, the drink, the drink takes, takes a drink, the man, the drink and takes the drink, drink and takes takes the man. The man. then the yep. drink takes the man. Yep. And, and it refers to the <laughs> slavery thing, but it also refers to the gradual process of it. Because when you start, whenever you were first introduced to alcohol, it was probably fun. It was probably social. It was probably um, you know, may have given you what they used to call Dutch courage, You're able to speak with others more freely. It, it takes away the inhibitions. It's a social lubricant. And it was a quote unquote social thing. And for nine out of 10 people, uh, that's how it remains. And they can go on in their life without these uh, negative consequences, whereas you had a DWI, right? It got to that point, which was only a matter of time. If you were dry, and I understand, you know, if, if it got to a point where your car is rattling around with all the empties, yeah, <clears throat> you're you're clearly drinking in your car. And and uh, and to show you the progression of the disease, so I had probably four or five years sober by that point, and I went to this birthday party, and I I specifically remember it, and it's twenty something years ago. I said to myself, I'm going to have one drink and I'm going to have the one drink that I do not like. I did not like the taste of gin. Gin and I never got along. So I ordered a gin and tonic thinking that I'll drink it, I'll hate it, and that'll be it. Well, it's not the gin. It's the alcohol that once it's in my body, <laughs> I felt the, that warm feeling. And it's been, it was five years since I've had one. And I was like, wow, th this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll have another one. And and then, so the second gin and tonic, it, it transformed into um, a, se a seven and tonic, you know, and then it got, it got into a vodka and tonic. And, and then it was just shots. So it started out with one drink and then it ended up, 
I probably had 12 or 15 and, and then got into a car and tried to drive home that night. And, and that the rest is history. So, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, relationships and alcohol. So, um, I may say this for another episode, but addiction. So two people get into a relationship and one of them notices that the other person is addicted to something. I, I had a woman on not too long ago. She was anonymous and she had, she told the story of a man she was dating and she could tell that he was addicted to something because while in the date, he started sweating and, and started having convulsions. And, and he, he would literally say, I, I have to go home and take some medication yada, yada, yada. So in a relationship, we get into relationships. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm trying to go with this. Um, if somebody I, oh, go ahead, yeah, 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 please take over. Well, uh, um, I before we uh, or in route to relationships and alcohol and sort of setting uh, the scene, I, I just want to say, can you so you definitely identified with uh, sla uh, addiction being a type of slavery. Um, but the other thing, which I think you alluded to in the fact that even the gin, which was not decidedly not your drink, is that at the end of the day, it turns out that addiction is about something deeper than whatever the superficial trigger is, it, uh, whether it's alcohol or a different substance or even a behavior like shopping or gambling or sex. Correct. Um, there's right, um, which is why uh, people, a lot of people in recovery, think of it as a spiritual disease. There's an and uh, AA, which has has been uh, doing this for the better part of a century now, has a lot of very useful slogans, and one is that there's uh, a god-sized hole in your heart. Something's missing. If you're not religious, that's okay. You can just say something's missing internally, yeah. and it and you try and fill it and fill it, and you can pour all the tea in China in there, and it's it's never going to be enough uh, until you start getting it from the inside, from yourself. And that's what the twelve steps are all about: is repairing that hole or filling yeah. in that hole. Yeah. And and where I'm going with this, Andrew, is in regard in regard to relationships and alcohol. So um, you know we know uh, addiction is tough enough, just one person and the substance. But of course, no man is an island. So we one of the biggest lies uh, that that addicts tell themselves is, well, it's nobody nobody's business if I do. I'm not hurting anybody else. And of course, it's patently untrue. There, you can't even if it's at the most minimal level. Even if a person is quote unquote functioning, they show up for their job every day. There's no way they're the best employee. No. Um, there's no way they're emotionally fully engaged with their family members. They're just kidding themselves. Right. And um, uh, my point is, so addiction by itself very complicated. A relationship between two partners. Uh, by the way, whether it's romantic or even just familial, uh, super complicated. So when these two worlds collide, it's like exponentially more complicated. And um, what I want to suggest is that actually, I, I feel that a lot of the issues you've been dealing with on your podcast um, 
have a lot to be learned from recovery in that at the end of the day, it's to steal another quote, uh, it's an inside job that, that the reason, just like you can be enslaved to a, a substance or a behavior, uh, you can be completely enthralled with this other person. And uh, one of the best definitions my, uh, was from my mom who referred to infi infatuation as temporary insanity. I, and it's I, a, go ahead. I, I was, I, I, and the audience knows this, that in the eight, I have eight years next month. In those eight years, I've been, thank you, I've been through three relationships. Um, and the first two were not, I wasn't addicted to the women. Um, I, I may have been addicted to um, the idea of having somebody in my life and I needed somebody to fill that hole that you talked about. The, but this last relationship, which started this podcast and the breakup, I literally went through withdrawals of, of her. Um, yeah. She was, um, and, and I'm, I'm careful with the labels here because I'm not a doctor, but in doing this podcast and research, she was a narcissistic, uh, on the narcissistic um, spectrum. She was also, did she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And um, I that Superman sy syndrome where I swooped in and said, oh, I can, I can help her. I, I put my all into that and I gave her everything, but she filled that hole in my heart that you talked about. And once that, once she was gone, it's just like taking the alcohol out of the, out of the drunk's hand. I, I was literally, she was gone overnight. It, it was a no contact breakup and it was just gone. And I, I went through the horrible withdrawals of a person. Um, so I, I basically swapped out one addiction for another. Is what right. I'm getting. Yeah. Right. And, and so one of the things that's interesting to me, not just in, in this case, but it, for everyone, we've all experienced this, is you spent a lot of time in the aftermath trying to make sense of all this by looking at her, but it turns out um, you could look at all the relationships before her and any after um, that the one person you're always bringing to those relationships is it's Anonymous me. Andrew. Yep. And until you get to know that guy a little more and what he's searching for, um, you, you're sort of doomed to repeat that pattern over and over and over. Um, and Alex, you've known me for, like I said, I think. Well, I by said the way, it's, it's closer to 10. I, I, I'm it's, just going to say least that. A yeah, yeah, because I, where we met, I, I, I was doing that 15, 20 years ago. You're correct. Yeah. It's closer to 10 years. So you, you knew the women yep. that I was with prior to my sobriety. And so there is a pattern that I have of getting out of a relationship and jumping right back into another one. Uh, with maybe a maybe if I'm if I was smart, giving myself a two or three month buffer in there, but I I would quickly like like an alcoholic who relapses quickly pick up a woman just to fill that void again. So I didn't have to deal with the with the withdrawal symptoms. You know, I didn't have to deal with the pain and the suffering and the, and the heartbreak. So let me just date again and find somebody else to fill that void. And that's a and what's the definition of insanity? Repeating the same pattern over and over, expecting different results. And and, and it was so you're you're absolutely correct. And I, I've said this in this podcast to my audience and to my ex. 
I take full responsibility for what happened. While she may have been instrumental in many of her behaviors and her and mental whatever, I stayed and I put up with it. And I, I had the freedom to walk away at any time. And I choose, I chose not to. So I, I am fully to blame there. And now during this single, or, and by the way, this is the longest time I've been single for for my adult life. I am I'll clap for that too. Yeah, I, I'm. It's almost like sobriety. I'm. I'm coming up on eight months of being single. It's. It's. It's like recovery. It's. I am finding out more about myself. I'm learning how to sit by myself and how to be alone by myself and how to fill that that void that you talked about by myself. And this podcast is one of those things. I'm learning to that there's other things in life that I can do. I don't have to have a woman next to me. I don't have to have a woman next to me watching TV. I don't have to have a woman next to me in bed while I'm sleeping. Um, I don't even, I'm not even going to go near the sex. Uh, I, you know, I could even go down to the beach by myself. I, I, I talked to the audience that she and I went to the beach for three summers every weekend. This summer's coming and I'm, f I'm filled with fear that, oh my God, I'm going to miss out on that summer. No, I get on my bike, go down to the beach and I'll sit on the beach for for three hours or whatever and bring a book or or and and walk around and maybe i'll meet somebody down there you know but for now i'm staying single because i need to work on everything you just talked about uh, good and uh, by the way when you're down there uh this weekend you'll be in good company by yourself uh that's the first thing and um by the way there so there are a lot of parallels to uh recovery from addiction and one is just like it's recommended, and, and one of the broader, rather than saying don't become a a, a drug cancer in, in early recovery, wait a little bit. Um, really, the admonition is don't make any major, major life changes in that first year, and and one of those is relationships. Correct. And and the real reason for that is. Um, how can you be in authentic, honest relationship with another person when you don't even know who no, this yeah, sober yeah. version of yourself is yet? Yeah. For anybody, for anybody who's getting sober for the first time, it, it's a scary, scary journey. And yeah, to bring another person into that is, is just not fair to them, but it's also, you're not doing yourself justice. Um, those 12 steps are there for a reason and they're in order for a reason. And those 12 steps will help you find why you drank, um, the, the harm that you did. You talked earlier about that the alcoholic or addict say, hey, I'm only hurting myself. No, the, my fourth step was had 30 people on it. You know, I had to make amends to, to all these people and, and half of that was my family. Right. So you are hurting other people. And um, so in that first year, yeah, staying single, uh, staying out of a relationship is key because you do have to fix what's broken inside you or, or again, back to that. I like, I like that, the, the hole in, 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 in your, was it the heart or, the, or. Yeah. God size hole in your heart. Yeah. I believe it is. And um, by the way, another, you know, when you were speaking about the palpable, sense of withdrawal you were feeling after uh, you went through sudden withdrawal when it immediately stopped the relationship um you know i'm not claiming this is a scientific reason but you could just pick up a newspaper any day 
and uh, you see people killing mm. or killing themselves or killing others that they supposedly love, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, and my point is talk about something that's pow so powerful, so all-consuming, and that the individual human is powerless against. Like that's a really, so, so uh, love and romantic relationships like these other substances, uh, there's this deeper force at work. And uh, the good news is, by the way, is once you're in recovery, you absolutely can have relationships. In fact, you're going to have healthier relationships because you're in better relationship with yourself and you're going to see things more clearly and make better choices. Um, but as far as, you know, now getting into the complicated thing of you, uh, a person is suffering with, with some sort of addiction um, and now they're impacting uh, their loved ones, whether it's a romantic partner, a spouse, uh, or a family member. One of the best um, descriptions for the family model of, a, uh, of addiction is a, um, a baby's mobile that hangs over its bassinet and it's got like different animal characters right. on right. strings. And if you, if one is active with addiction, they all start to vibrate. And um, it, so it turns out uh, that it, it really is a family disease. What typically happens is, and this happens in marriages too, is that the person with the addiction is viewed as the black sheep. They're the problem. Uh -huh. Yep. The behavior. I, I was the black I, sheep of my family. <laughs> right. You could attest to that. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, black sheep don't come out of nowhere. Something, as you and I talked about, the, the substance, the behavior, that's being driven by a deeper need that's not being right. fulfilled. And by the way, one of the things I'm hope, I hope you're able to do on this process, it's great that you're taking uh, accountability for keeping yourself in this uh, relationship that in retrospect wasn't healthy, but that you're also a little easy and, and forgiving on yourself because here's the thing. The reason you stayed is you were getting something out of it. Oh. Even though, like, like an alcohol addiction, even though it was hurting your organs, hurting your relationships, hurting you legally and financially on all these different levels, it was you had a wound, you had something out of balance in your life. Mm -hmm. And this, at least in the beginning, helped you deal with it for a while. Um, and vice versa. She had something too. And 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 we've talked about this on, on other episodes. There's, there's that trauma bonding in the beginning. So th this might be a good segue. So in the beginning of a relationship, if two people on a date, like second, third, fourth, or fifth date, start sharing their trauma stories of childhood or even the last relationship, how horrible they were. That's, so I'm, I'm just going to speak from my experience and then I'll, I'll have you chime in. That's a red flag. So if, if somebody starts sharing their trauma, that's not what you, it's trauma bonding and it's not, it's not a good sign. And that's what we did. She and I would sit on the couch and she would tell me her horror stories as she was growing up. And of course I would, she would then start crying and 
I would hold her and and that's trauma bonding turns into love bombing turns into um, it, it's a progression. What? So I, I so somebody in my audience is dating and uh, they go out for a date and, and and by the way when when you first start dating we all are on our best behavior even an alcoholic will go out and have one or two drinks because he knows he wants to set a good make a good impression on his date but by the second third fourth or even fifth date that's when the more drinks start coming so somebody's dating somebody and they see they and so she has a glass of, he or she has a glass of wine and by the by the end of her wine he's had three scotch and sodas or whatever and you know somebody so that's a red flag i i would say to them do not pursue that relationship um what do you do if this person was able to hide their alcoholism for six months which we can do we are some of these alcoholics and addicts are very good insidious at hiding so six to eight to nine months maybe you're a year in you finally realize this person is an alcoholic what advice would you offer somebody who didn't see the signs early on but they are now blaring do they leave because now they're in love and they just found out that their partner is secretly drinking behind their back or they're running to the bathroom doing cocaine or whatever is that is that a do, do you have people coming in with with those kind of stories do we send them to Al-Anon yeah a absolutely uh, so there are a couple of things and again it, it it actually comes back to the person so let's say one of your your listener who who just found out six months in oh this isn't who I thought I was dating. Uh, this is something else. Uh, and I, I need to, uh, before I, uh, so I am going to recommend Al-Anon, but before I do, uh, I need to make the point, Andrew, though, that even people without an addiction, that is a phenomenon that happens because we are on our best behavior for that initial honeymoon period. Mm -hmm. um, and we are all projecting what we most want and desire onto the other person like a movie screen yeah. and it takes it's funny it's usually around six months i don't know why that all of a sudden the cracks start to appear it, yep. it's harder and harder and uh so maybe originally you you bring a girl home to meet your family and they're like her really she's the one or they're saying to to the woman really that guy but in your eyes you just see mm -hmm. what you want to see. Yeah, you see the roses and the garden and yeah. Which, by the way, and that's a, a beautiful and necessary part of it. Otherwise, people would never get together and we need people to get together, just like we need drug counselors. Yeah. So that's okay. <laughs> um, as long as you don't try and stay, the hard part of one of the hard parts of life is needing to grow and change. And so now, uh, if you cling to that, what that idealized version that you projected onto this other poor, unsuspecting person, by the way, because it's not just the, the addict who's in on masking himself, the lover is also projecting this other Superman, 
white knight in shining armor, uh, cowboy with the white hat, impossibly high ideals onto this person, which is why she feels so strongly attracted. Correct. And, and, and usually around six months in, sometimes a little sooner, sometimes later, the cracks start to appear. And the classic line, Andrew, is, oh, you've changed. Mm -hmm. When the fact is they were always more or less that person. <laughs> We, just, um, we either didn't see it or right um, we didn't want to see it didn't want to see it correct now at this point now that uh and then let's uh talk about your uh listener at this point now that she sees it there are oh and and uh what i started to say was this happens regard even if there is no addiction um we this is just a human phenomenon once you start seeing it you have uh, at least two choices. One is to say, oh, well, you're not who I thought you were and get rid of that guy and try and find that again in someone else and hope it works out that time. And often that's why people keep having this, you know, the divorce rate in this country is 50%. And, and people keep trying to recreate it with different guys. But in a lot of ways, they wind up being the same guy or the same gal in some respects. Or... Um, but this isn't doomed to failure. We all know plenty of people who have had long, lengthy, healthy relationships. And, and the reason is because, and uh, this all goes back to recovery, acceptance. You say, okay, you, you know, this, what I'm seeing in front of me with warts and all, isn't my fantasy, my idealized version that was in my heart of hearts that I've been going around looking for desperately mm. in everyone. Um, but you're real and I'll take you as you are. And actually it's a tremendous, a beautiful uh, leap of faith that you'll take me with all my faults and my shortcomings and my warts and all. And then uh, less sexy but very real and that mature, not immature. Cause the first one, that romantic flush of love is, is emotionally immature. It's got these high standards. No one can ever really fully live up to. And certainly not sustainable um, no matter how great your partner is. Um, but this more mature love where you can be accepting of of life on life's terms, the reality that exists, which is okay, maybe he's not Mr. Perfect, maybe, but who among us are? That's that's different. And and uh, so that was a long way around getting to answer your question is, uh, the your listener needs to ask herself a few questions because like you said, now she's in love, she's invested. Mm -hmm. Because she, by the way, in addition to all the initial romantic stuff, she has also gotten slowly but surely to know and value this other human being. And it's hard to just walk away from that. Um, so uh, that uh, your, your listener needs to ask herself some questions like, what, it, what am I getting out of this? What do I want to be getting out of this? Um, and is it, you know, do I think it's worth um fighting for and of course a lot depends on the other person because uh so by by referring uh, your listener to Alanon she would get um 
instruction about how to work on that acceptance. Um, as far as there's a great movie called and I never thought I'd say this because it's a Hallmark movie. It's called When Love Is Not Enough. A lot of people know Bill W's story, the co-founder of AA, mm -hmm. but this is uh, his wife's story. Um, and uh, it turns out that actually sometimes love isn't enough because the third party, namely this disease of addiction, comes into the relationship with you, you which you didn't bargain on. You thought you were getting together with your partner, and now there's this other thing, and it brings what we call the insanity of the disease with it into your life, into your home. And sometimes the pain it brings from all the negative consequences is just so intense that no matter how much you love someone, you just you need it to stop yeah. to survive yourself. And, and I would and I would like to add on to that something that I from my perspective and because I it, I lived it is if this listener six, eight, nine months in discovers that her or his partner is an alcoholic or into drugs or into whatever addiction, gambling or whatever, they are not going to stop. So they, they sit the person down and go, Hey, this, you're drinking too much. And I didn't, you, we're, you know, all of a sudden she discovers all the bottles in the trunk of his car. Right. And right. Um, that person, they, the alcoholic or addict is not going to stop drinking because you asked them to. As you know, we do not stop unless we want to and, and we're ready to or hit rock bottom. Do you remember the relationship that I was in prior to my sobriety? She was a friend of that organization. I do. I know yeah. exactly who you're and talking about. And I was engaged to her. Yes. She, she begged me, begged me for almost a year. You gotta stop drinking. And her father was in the 12-step program and had 30-something years sobriety. And she said to me one day, I am not gonna marry my father because you're an alcoholic and he's an alcoholic, but he's in recovery and you're not. And I looked at her and I'd say, Sure, okay. And I would do everything that an alcoholic does to hide the drinking and pretend that I fixed it, you know. And of course, we just can't do that. We it, you could see right through it. So to that person who gets into a relationship and discovers that that person is an alcoholic or an addict, if you're going to get into the the car with them and go on that ride, buckle up because it's going to be a rough journey. Amen. Uh, yeah. Amen. You, rem uh, if I can, um, yeah. you, you remind me uh, a teacher, uh, I had a professor mentor had this uh, great line. So there's this, if you are the uh, adult child of an alcoholic, which is a, its own term now, ACOA, mm -hmm. um, it, it is, there are very strong reasons why you may be attracted, even though you would think logically you'd be repelled and want to run away from it. Oftentimes the pattern repeats itself and you wind up uh, attracted to, to an alcoholic. And uh, my professor had said to a woman who was in recovery, um, and who had, you know, maybe more than a year uh, and had met someone in the rooms of AA and she was asking for her advice, you know, like, oh, I know you're not supposed to do it too soon, you know, meet someone too soon. 
And what the professor said to her was, you know what, you're going to wind up marrying an alcoholic anyway. So you're much better off meeting one in recovery who's on the way up than taking that ride down. And um, so again, going back to your listener, she does uh, need to know that sadly, and people try all sorts of things. Oh, well, once we get married, he'll stop. Once we have a baby, surely he'll stop. Once we buy the home, whatever it is, or get the new job. And it turns out that none of that for most people is enough. And if it is, by the way, there is every once in a while, yep, uh, you know, maybe one in a million, uh, then we're like having the baby that just, they cut it out. And that was it. Uh, But what happened was they sort of went on a shotgun recovery by themselves. They grew up, whether it happened overnight or over nine months, something in them changed internally. And they were able that that goes to that hole in the heart. Um, uh, But that is really, really rare. Uh, the, The overwhelming majority of people uh, also, it may be that they weren't as far along in the addictive process. There's this sort of, you know, um, uh, invisible line that once you cross it, you can't yeah, go back yeah. over. I have a, I have a quick story about the very first woman I dated in sobriety. Um, I, I did stay single for one year. Um, this is the the second sobriety. So in 2015, I stayed single primarily because I, I wanted to get back that woman because she kicked me out of her life. And I thought if I got sober and showed her that I can stay sober, she would take me back, but that didn't happen. So once I realized that I, I started to date and I met a woman and she had just left her husband who she told me was an alcoholic for 30 years. So when she found out that I was in recovery, that she jumped at me. Because I, I I guess she said, oh, I I am pretty positive this guy is not going to drink. So she was leaving 30 years of alcohol, active alcoholism and, and dating somebody who was sober. But something happened within that year. She went back to her husband. Mm. After dating me one year, she went back to her husband. Uh, I don't know if he got sober. I don't know what happened, but she went back to the active. I shouldn't say active. I don't know what he was. So, um, Alex, we're we're gonna wrap it up. I I I have a thought though. I, this not only are are you a great orator and and you are filled with knowledge. I'd like to have you back from time to time. Um, great. I'd love to. Uh, yeah, because I I have some additional thoughts and ideas that uh on this topic um let me if i can before you wrap it up yeah anything you want to add yeah well as a drug and alcohol counselor the one big takeaway for either people whose lives are touched in some way whether it's a family member or themselves uh by by addiction or maybe down the road there you you never know who you're going to run into um one of the things your listener needs to know, and she'll have to, these are hard decisions, take into account, is that um, recovery is there for her loved one if he's at a place where he's ready to hear it and wants it. 
and that a funny thing happened, psychologists call it black gold, the very things that drove the addiction underneath, once they're addressed, can become like your superpowers and, yeah. and can make you not just good and whole, not perfect, but 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 really, um, which is probably what attracted uh, that woman to you, among other things, um, and and that 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 potential is there for anyone. You've been yeah. proving it for years. And yeah. by the way, just because you had a relapse doesn't mean that those years, those first years of sobriety, were any less sober. It means you had something more to learn about oh. your about about Andrew. Uh, which is why what you're doing now, just giving yourself some space to uh, get familiar with yourself uh, without a, a love interest is really important. So uh, I really appreciate being on. I enjoyed our talk. I'd be happy to do this again whenever you want. And um, uh, just uh, people should know that there is help available. You can pick up a phone and call a treatment center. Uh, you can absolutely look up AA or if it's a family member, Al-Anon um, or any 12 step program for this pretty much one for everything under the sun these yep. days. Um, uh, speak to someone. You don't have to suffer alone. And that goes for either side, either the alcoholic addict or the person who's in the relationship or a family member. There is help for both of them. Um and I just want to say one more thing about my sobriety. And this is something that I've given a lot of thought to. And, and you hear it often in the 12 step rooms is I have another relapse in me. I have another drink waiting for me, but I do not have another recovery. So if I relapse, I know that I will not be coming back. So that helps me stay sober. I, I, I've done it once. I've, re, I've entered recovery and I've relapsed. But I was 30 something years old. Now I'm at 63. I know if I pick up a drink, I'll be dead in a year. There's no doubt in my mind. So, and and I, I don't think that I'll walk back into the rooms unless the my, the God of my understanding sends all the all my sponsors and my my support group knocking on my door and drag my ass back to an AA meeting. I know myself that this is what helps me stay sober one day at a time. Is that if I pick up a drink, I don't think that I have another recovery in me. And, and that's, they, they may sound macabre, but from, for me, it keeps me sober. So um, among a half a dozen other things, Alex, thank you so much. I, I really see um, so much. You're full of knowledge and you're, and, and I, and I, 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 you and I have talked about doing a podcast for years and I, I'd like you to be part of this podcast as often as you can, as often as your schedule permits. So we'll have you back. There's so many things we can talk about. It doesn't even have to be limited to alcohol and addiction. Um, you, you have enough, you have a lot of knowledge and I'd like that uh, in you. So. Thank you, Andrew. It'd be my pleasure. And I actually, it's just a nice excuse to be able to talk to you. So yeah. I, I, yeah. I enjoyed our time. Thanks for having me. All right. I would like to thank Alex once again for joining me today, a very good friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please, if you have the opportunity on your app to leave a review, please take one minute, scroll down to the bottom of your app, especially on Apple or Spotify. And if you have five stars and you think I deserve it, please leave me five stars. And below that, there should be a little 
box where you can leave a blurb. It is um, the only thing I ask, and it will help this podcast reach many more people. Once again, thank you. And if you're going to make a choice, please choose wisely. Ciao. Thank you.